Hello! Please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One has two good movies, the other two bad. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam S. Thomas Esquire. And I am Thomas Mariani. And Adam, I can see your dirty pillows. (laughs) Hide your dirty pillows, Adam. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Oh, I should also mention that uh, with us again from last episode is Caitlin Turner, here to do the picking. Caitlin, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm just holding some balloons. About to pop some blood on your head, Adam, from, from Justin to Kelly. Why am I the one with my dirty pillows out and getting blood popped all over me? Because <laughs> you put me through from Justin to Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and now Caitlin will do the Pennywise dance. But Caitlin's joining us to participate in the intro for our topic of this week, which is Stephen King adaptations. Uh, this is the week of Castle Rock premiering on Hulu. And uh, we're all very curious to see how that goes. But it just opened up the opportunity because uh, there's plenty of Stephen King adaptations to talk about, both horror or otherwise, and both good and bad. Yeah, I'd say there's probably more on the bad side than good. What are you talking about? Rose Red is a classic. (laughs) But, Caitlin, I know you're a big reader. Um, Are you a fan of Stephen King and the adaptations of his work? I love Stephen King. The adaptations are very hit and miss, but I I absolutely endorse most of Stephen King's earlier work and some after, but Firestarter would definitely be my favorite of his. And one that could use a good modern adaptation. Please! Yes, And an actual Native American playing the Native American and not a white guy. (laughs) Not George C. Scott, the most authentic Native American possible. (laughs) Oh, that was so bad. Um, but yes, uh, there's, of course, Stephen King adaptations is very popular right now, and uh, there's plenty to choose from. And for those of you who don't know, uh, with our topics uh, for every episode, we each have two good or two bad movies we don't know much about beyond the fact that they fit the general theme that we do here. And Adam has the two good movies, I have the two bad ones. And uh, usually we would each trade off on picking a number between 1 and 10 to seal our fate. So whenever we have a guest like Caitlin here, uh, we instruct them to pull the trigger on this. So uh, let's go ahead and we'll start with Adam's two choices. So Caitlin, number between one and ten for the goods. For the goods, I'll go three. Number three. All right. My closest was at number two, and it is the Arnold Schwarzenegger starring The Running Man. <laughs> the most faithful Stephen King adaptation of all. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I fucking love that movie. For a lot of reasons, probably none of them that have to do with actually Stephen King. At number eight, I had Stand By Me. Oh, wonderful. I think we got the one that has a little more to talk about, to be honest. But <laughs> Maybe that's yep, true. I decided just... to go... Right, exactly. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland did it. Oh. <laughs> hey, remember I... that part 
where yeah. where where Will Wheaton and River Phoenix were like confessing a lot of like truths about each other. That was cool. It's, mm-hmm. it's that's what it would be. It's a great movie. Exactly. There's not a lot to talk about. No, I decided to go non-horror on purpose. Yes, that's true. Um, but now we've got the two bad ones to choose from. Oh God! So Caitlin, shoot seven. At number eight is the much beloved and solely kingy adaptation, Maximum Overdrive. I'm good with that one. I'm not even mad at that. Oh, dang it. I'm so sad. Look, that could have gone way worse. Well, yeah, he would have really suffered if he got closer to number four, which was Dreamcatcher. Oh, Jesus. I wouldn't even be mad at that, believe it or not. (laughs) So, really, I lucked out all the way around. Screw you guys. I'm starting to think Adam's definition of bad might be a little different than ours. I don't know. They're both bad, but they're interesting bad, I think is the point. Aside from Justin to Kelly. Maximum Overdrive is an atrocious film, but at least it's fun in parts, I think, if I remember right. I don't know. It's been a long time. That's true. Now I'm getting worried. Um, but I mean, Adam, it's gonna scare the hell out of you. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! I forgot about that fucking campaign. From the trailer that you'll probably be hearing later in this episode as our transition point. Uh, But before we go, Caitlin, thank you for joining us here. Quick plug, uh, what's your blog all about books? The blog is Lost in a Sea of Stories at WordPress.com. And thank you guys for having me. Yes, uh, but now we've got to open a few pages of our own and dig into The King right after this. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice. Hard time or prime time. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play the running man. On your mark! I'll be back. Go! It's a game between life and death. Arnold Schwarzenegger is... The Running Man. He's playing for a prize. The prize is his life. Out with the life. The Running Man. And we are back from our intro and our double feature viewing, and we've brought along a new guest. It is uh, of Horror News Radio, Mr. Dave Dreyer. Dave, how are you doing this evening? Where the hell am I? (laughs) what the hell's going on here (laughs) thomas it's so good to see you or hear you and adam always a pleasure to spend time with you dave and i go way back but uh dave one thing that i know about you ever since uh we first started talking is that you're a big stephen king buff yes uh yes yeah there was a point in my life where i was actually a little bit uh, insane on my stephen king fandom so yes but i i've matured as i've grown older and i am now just a buff much like Stephen King himself and his drug habits, you've weaned yourself a bit yes, more. That, that very much so, yes. I had to go <laughs> through some rehab. We'll get into that shortly. Uh, but it's interesting we have you on here for one of the two admittingly less, not necessarily faithful, maybe with Running Man less faithful, but definitely with Maximum Overdrive, maybe the less appreciated Stephen King adaptations, quote-unquote, would you say? I'm not sure I'd go with the word appreciated, <laughs> but yes, yes. These are two very interesting, yeah, two different ones. <laughs> that That is for sure. We do strive for different. I mean, our first feature is The Running Man, which uh, was released on November 13th, 1987, um, and is based on 
the book by Stephen King, or Richard Bachman, as it's was originally at least titled to. Um, and Dave, I'm guessing you've read the book, and from what I've heard, it's not very faithful at all of an adaptation. No, no, other than the name Ben Richards and the name Killian, <laughs> that's pretty much pretty much all that they've, they've gleaned from the from the novel. Uh, yeah, the the book was very dark and very gritty and incredibly depressing. It's probably one of Stephen King's most depressing books. Uh, uh, there is nothing of any redeeming value of any of these characters, uh, in the book, uh, and the movie just ended up being an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. Uh, and you know, so it had very little to do with it at all. It'd be nice to see an, a faithful adaptation because the story, the actual story of the running man is an incredible story. Right, yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, this one written by a Stephen E. D'Souza, who was a prominent screenwriter in the 80s and 90s, best known for writing the original Die Hard, which had come out a year after this, um, and directed by Paul Michael Glazer, who, I think, as Schwarzenegger put it accurately in an interview, kind of made the whole thing look like a TV production, which sometimes works, and other times doesn't, or, as we were kind of talking pre-show, Dave would argue maybe doesn't at all. <laughs> in any circumstance <laughs> the film does have one redeeming uh, factor and that is the casting of richard dawson as killian he is dynamic as killian he is really great on screen uh i, I do really enjoy his performance oh yeah he's so slimy and greasy you know because i always remember dawson from you know the family feud reruns growing up and, uh, I mean, just how he would just kiss every female contestant and just fake-ass Frank Sinatra, basically. I love Killian in this movie. I love Richard Dawson. You know, but the thing is, as we talked about pre-show, uh, I'm going to have to fight Dave, and I'm thinking maybe you too, Thomas. Uh, I love this fucking movie. It's Look, I grew up in the 80s, so the Arnold, like the slate of Arnold action movies was like my childhood. I loved them. This, Commando, Terminator, Total Recall, you know, all of them. I watched them over and over and over. And plus, I mean, some of the worst yet best one-liners ever from Arnold is in this movie. I mean, you know, Killian, here's your Sub-Zero. Now playing Zero. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, though. Sub-Zero. Sub -zero. What, the, what the hell does that even mean? It's, I don't know. It's the best, anything. though. It is the best. He was already <laughs> negative, so technically he's up to, like, zero. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I don't quite get it. The the only the only Schwarzenegger line in this that I even recall, and it's not even him, it's Richard Dawson playing off of him, is uh of course the infamous you know, I'll be back as they're getting ready to shoot him down the tube and he does his trademark I'll be back and Dawson leans over and goes only in reruns. <laughs> and yeah, he goes, yeah, that was the right. that was the best line in the movie. But then it's like they throw back to the I'll be back like a couple times in the movie. They were banking on that pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a... Not the first nor the last time he would do that in a non-Terminator movie, though. Yeah, he sure. does that, that was all the time. Mm -hmm. It's one that's not technically a one-liner because it's like a huge run-on sentence. But I do kind of love, you cold-blooded bastard. I'll tell you what I think about it. Oh, I'll bad. live to see you eat the <laughs> contract. But I hope you leave enough room for my fist because I'm going to ram it into your stomach and break your goddamn spine. I know, it's the best. It's a giant oh, run-on sentence, but it's kind of amazing because he's just committing to it. That's the thing, is that Arnold, for all of his faults, is maybe not the best actor 
is always a very committed performer, regardless. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah. And, and I would say, really, The Running Man, uh, as an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, is actually a quite a fun film. But as a Stephen King adaptation, it's probably, at least for me, one of the worst yeah. adaptations of a, of a King property. So how does that average out for you then, Dave, overall? Do you kind of, like, have a middle ground then where you're kind of, like, walk the line of it? Or are you more in just the, like, it's a bad adaptation, therefore bad movie? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I mean, I can separate it out, but I, I, if, if I want to, uh, have people over and watch some Stephen King movies, the running man would never even be in the running <laughs> to be played. <laughs> so, so, uh, but uh, you know, it, it is what it is. I'm, it, you know, it, it's an okay Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's got it. It has its moments. I agree actually with that. More than anything else, I like The Running Man more, but once again, it's an old Schwarzenegger movie, don't have much basis for the actual book it's quote-unquote based on. But even as an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, I would say it's like a B Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, because usually like the A ones are the ones that usually work in perhaps spite of being a Schwarzenegger movie, like a Terminator, Terminator 2, um, a few others that are like, they work in spite of Schwarzenegger being, you know, sort of the star, um, as even better movies than the usual, versus this is like sort of the usual one that most parodies are kind of based on the running man kind of feels like that. It's sort of the typical one, which doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. It's just familiar to Schwarzenegger more than it kind of exceeds that. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I can agree with that. Um, you know, if I was going that my top, uh, you know, eighties or eighties to mid nineties Schwarzenegger movies, this probably wouldn't be in the top five, but I mean, maybe it'd be a top five because he did a lot of shit. But, um, <laughs> I mean, it's still, this one just holds a special place in my heart. I loved the look of it, you know, with all the different stalkers and, you know, Jesse Ventura <laughs> and just, uh. Jesse Ventura is the underrated MVP of the movie, though. He's absolutely. So He's fun. Fantastic. <laughs> but like I said, it's just, I remember when, you know, I'd play with my action figures and I would play this game with all my different action figures. Uh, and like they were the characters from the movie, you just keep yelling the one-liners and stuff. I was definitely way too young to see this movie, but I had a very disinterested father, so <laughs> he, just, he just didn't care what we watched. Well, let's go to psychiatrist um, couch, and I will say at least this much: um, it has the best Schwarzenegger beard. Early on, oh, he's got that beard. beard. It's yeah, an amazing beard, guys. Come on, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dave. Even you can admit it's a fantastic beard. I, that, that, I am in facial hair awe. Yes, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the the basic sort of premise we haven't really gone into is just that Arnold Schwarzenegger is a guy who used to be a cop who ended up uh, betraying the orders that he was given to shoot down a bunch of protesters in this future dystopia of 2017, which was probably more accurate to 2017 than it ever expected to be, um, <laughs> and ends up getting imprisoned, and he escapes from prison along with Yafet Kodo and a few others, and he ends up uh, getting wrangled up in the Running Man game, which is uh, the most popular television show. It's this sort of big elaborate game show in which people um, are forced to fight to the death for the amusement of the crowds. And I think, like I said, it works at its best, I think, kind of when it leans into the fakeness of the TV sort of nature of it. Whenever, like Dave mentioned, it's Richard Dawson, especially interacting with the crowd. I love the bits where he's talking about just like, now who do you think's gonna do it? Who should we send out there to kill this man? Oh, I don't know. It's like <laughs> housewives or older ladies who voluntarily do this. I, I love those bits so much. 
I want to know how you play Running Man, the home version. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, you know, I watched that myself. Like, what are they, what, what's in that fucking box? It's like the family goes together. It's like Monopoly, but it's like, oh, you drew the Kill Billy card. Billy, run from your sister. Right, right. But JD, get the flamethrower. <laughs> Speaking of which, Tim Brown as uh, God, Fireball. Yeah, it's Fireball. Yeah. I mean, how silly his outfit was. I mean, guess well. I mean, I guess it's nothing compared to some of the other outfits. But Dynamo. the opera guy with the light up suit, Dynamo, Dynamo, Dynamo yeah, it's far. A lighthead Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! You know, way too many of the one liners from this thing. You gotta oh, stop watching. I, you know what? I probably should. <laughs> Speaking of therapists, I gotta talk to mine about it. When you really boil it down, what it is? I mean, it's a really dark, dark story. It's pretty effed up. You know, of course, the silly one-liners and everything, and it being Arnold Schwarzenegger and his barely-can-understand-him accent, you know, sort of make it a little more light in tone. But, um, I mean, I just got to imagine, if they would have went with a different lead and just toned down those one-liners and things, this would be a lot more of a dark, sort of disturbing movie. Um, I, I would say even borderline, almost on, um, almost like a horror if they toned down some of the one-liners and everything like that. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. Then again, I think we kind of got that years later. I mean, there have been plenty of things that would have been inspired by this kind of dystopian mm-hmm. fiction. I'd argue, you know, maybe like a Battle Royale, for example, probably took that and did the best version we probably could have gotten <laughs> out of that house. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What made the book so much better was uh, Richards was doing it for a good reason. In the book, his daughter's dying of cancer. And the wife has turned to a career of prostitution to try to buy the medicine. Again, it's a dystopian future. There's no money. There's none of this. And uh, he decides he goes to the game show and offers himself up uh, in an effort to try to get his daughter the medicine she needs to be able to live. So, I mean, right there, it's a much better freaking story, <laughs> you know, because he's actually fighting for something. So he he volunteers to be a contestant. He volunteers to be a contestant uh, oh, because if you can Lord. go if you can go thirty days, you get a billion dollars, and in the book you get a hundred dollars for every hour you uh, evade, because the, they give you a twelve hour head start, and then they send out a squad of hitmen to get you. Uh, and then the, everybody else in the world, if they report you and, and, uh, they kill you while you're, while, you know, based on your, on your clue, uh-huh. then you win the prize. So everybody's against him <laughs> and he's trying to stay alive to save his daughter. Uh, and he wants to go, I'm going to get this wrong. A, a true King fan will probably kill me. I think it's eight days and five hours or something. He has to go and, and he will, will have earned enough money to save his daughter. But again, I don't want to ruin the book for anybody who might want to read it, but it, it, it gets way off the whales freaking crazy. And it has probably the darkest ending of any King book ever. I read about that in terms of like during my research for the episode, I read a bit more about the book itself. And I've heard about that. And that sounds interesting. And it kind of does seem like it probably would have been in better hands if we had, say, like a Paul Verhoeven taking on this kind of dark satire, which, you know, he, of course, Schwarzenegger would later make one of, once again, the A versions of a Schwarzenegger movie of Total Recall that yeah. you know, draws on a lot of similar themes, uh, but obviously it's more Philip K. Dick-ish, for sure. Uh, but I I do agree that I think 
The problem is, this movie is clearly trying so hard to make the character of Ben Richards, in this case, so much more of, like, a Arnold Schwarzenegger hero, where there is really no line to really draw between his characters, no real dimension. Which, I mean, is fine for a usual Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, but the movie is still also trying to be very satiric, and it does that with pretty much most of the other characters except for the heroes. And I do kind of feel that. It feels slightly disingenuous to me. I do agree with Dave in that respect. That even without reading the novel, it does kind of seem like this weird tug and pull of, like, traditional Schwarzenegger movie versus harder satire it wants to be. It's really going more on that edge. It wants to have its cake and eat it too. And I, I'd argue it doesn't quite achieve that. Right. Well, I think Cohen uh, bought the bought the property before he knew it was King. I don't think uh, when he bought The Running Man, he had no idea he was buying a King property. And then lo and behold, the news drops that Richard Bachman is Stephen King and, and uh, Rob Cohen sitting there going, holy shit, I have a Stephen King property. You know, and uh, I think it was kind of rather apparent he didn't quite know what to do with it. Right, and you're referring to Rob Cohen, producer of this movie, director later of our favorite movie, Adam Hurricane Heist, which we've previously covered on the show. Oh, which is yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny, though, to go back to what you guys talking about, but the, uh, some of the character arcs and things. Now, I will agree that I felt the, for some, why, I, I mean, I don't even understand how there was a love angle, romantic angle between Arnold and that woman. And this, it was so... It felt very forced. Yeah, me. Marita Conchita Alonso has not much to do in this movie except being Spanish. No, really. Exa- that's literally <laughs> it. That's literally <laughs> it. But she does it very well, in in all fairness. Yeah, not not, on, not too badly. And she has a few moments, like when she actually defeats Dynamo with the sprinkler system. It's it's a fun <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, um, but, but you know, I will say, where this does take risks, I think, from the usual Schwarzenegger movies, where it's at its most interesting, like, I really like the whole sequence of them doctoring a fight between him and Jesse Ventura's character, and us actually seeing that. I think that is some of the better satire of the movie, because it leans into sort of the fake TV-ness of it. Even the actual sequence of them fighting, it's choppy, it clearly is edited to aim toward Jesse Ventura being the hero, quote-unquote, which is where Paul Michael Glazer's sort of more flat aesthetics work. And it's also the one of the few times, especially in this era, we saw Schwarzenegger die, especially like a non-Terminator movie. He usually would like survive as the big hero. And he does obviously here, but actually seeing him die in a gory context here was actually rare. Even in his overall filmography is kind of rare, especially at this period. Very true. Yeah, I can't think of really many Arnold movies where he did die a gory death. That would happen more later, I think, once we get to, like, um, <laughs> End of Days or any of those other oh, uh, like God. later period yeah, well, Schwarzenegger movies. Because they kind of had to lean into, oh, he's dying here. Um, I, I'm sure he wanted to die during the production of, say, Jingle All the Way <laughs> or a few of those other, oh, Junior, maybe. Man. But yeah. uh, it didn't quite... <laughs> And no, was, we die instead a little bit on true. the inside. <laughs> a little bit. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, and there are also, I will say, like some fun supporting characters. I do like in a Schwarzenegger movie, usually what he, works for him is, while he is the lead star, he does give the Avenue 4 side characters. Like we mentioned, Jesse Ventura, Richard Dawson. But there are a few other fun bits and pieces. Like I like Kurt Fuller, who plays the guy who's sort of like the lead switcher 
on the whole thing and how he's getting screwed over by Dawson the whole time. He's like, you're finally getting it. You're finally doing it, Kurt. <laughs> the whole time. Uh, there's there's a few other people. Even, of course, the obvious other stalkers, I think, have, while oh. very gimmicky premises are kind of fun, like a buzzsaw. I like that whole sequence of him getting chopped in half, even though one of the worst one-liners of the movie is one that's literally ADR'd in about, like, what happened to Buzzsaw? He had to split. <laughs> Come on, that's amazing. But it's so thrown in. It's ADR'd it's just badly yeah. into the movie. <laughs> and I like it all. Oh, Mick Fleetwood. And of course we had Dweezil we had, Zappa. I was going to say Dweezil Zappa and Mick Fleetwood. <laughs> why would, Why did Mick Fleetwood agree to be in the running man? Because Malcolm McDowell somehow declined. Like, this is a role that would totally be Malcolm McDowell. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Dweezil Zappa, who has one of the better lines of, don't touch that dial. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. And then um, the guy who plays uh, Sven, Sven Ol Thorson, is actually, uh, you know, he's the guard or whatever. He's in a, quite a few Arnold movies because he was his... Um, a weightlifting friend of his, and also his uh, body double for a lot of the earlier uh, uh, Schwarzenegger movies. And some might recognize him as Lafleur's from Mallrats, probably his most prominent on-screen part. Oh my god, he was Lafleur's. Yes, he is Lafleur's in that movie. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> I didn't even place that. Oh my god! Yes. Oh, yeah. Where well, they were going to knock him out with a bag of qu- a sock of quarters. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, but, you know, we've uh, we've talked about him a bit more, but we should really lean into a bit more of Richard Dawson, who obviously, yes. as you mentioned, was the host of Family Feud for the longest time and was sort of the main reason he got this part. And it is really genius because I feel like he is the most sort of Stephen King-ish character in terms of he's a perfectly hateable villain of one that, like, you're you want to see go down, but at the same time, you're charmed every time he appears on screen. It's just magnetic to watch him, and particularly when he sort of has his moments of being, uh, having his comeuppance, you really feel it. Like, even in something as small as when he tries to talk to the guy about Gilligan's Island, and there's the pause on the phone, he's like, the one with the boat. Yeah. <laughs> that one. <laughs> like, he's that out of his wheelhouse at the moment while talking to this guy. It is, I agree, it's a phenomenal performance. It's probably, I think it's the one of the few he ever did for film. Um, but it's perfect casting. It's phenomenal work here. Now, did anybody else get the the feeling that maybe he was putting a lot of himself into the role? Like, maybe Richard Dawson wasn't that enjoyable of a person in real life. <laughs> I don't know. Not enough sexual harassment in the movie to quite fit Richard Dawson, to be fair. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> Not too much of that. But it, it does seem like he's drawing from experience, perhaps. Maybe just what he experienced in the television industry. Maybe just what he did in the television industry. Who knows? Um, but uh, it definitely feels like someone who's been around the block, which fits for the character of Killian. Because he is very much just like this guy who's been through the ropes. He's the the top of the you know, this television censored empire and stuff like that. And seeing him get it's just slightly collapsed every time is so great. Like especially when um, the second um, stalker dies and he has to like go to like oh but it's fine guys we're gonna go to our halftime show and we'll be right back right after these messages and you can just see on his face like how am I losing control? I never would have lost control before. This is crazy. Um, and it, it does really match well. It's like he's a perfect foil for Schwarzenegger. He's the main reason to watch this movie. I, I would agree, yes. I, I mean, I can't disagree with that now. When I was younger, no, but now, absolutely. And uh, how funny is his death? 
<laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty awesome, man. <laughs> and admittingly, he gets more to do than, say, more experienced character actors like Yafet Kodo, who the entire movie just looks constipated. Like, the whole movie, he just looks just, like, bloated and just like, I don't know if I want to be here. Like, especially his death scene. Soaking wet the whole time. (laughs) It's like, just sweaty. (laughs) And he does, like, the type of death scene acting that's clearly from an actor who doesn't want to be there. Just like, you have to go on. Uh, <laughs> it's really bad. It's, it, it, it isn't helpful. He's soaked in like the lighting of the Running Man. Just especially in terms of the game show element, just reminds me of like a '90s era like Nick game show. Just like oh man, it's supposed to be hardcore, and by hardcore we mean super harsh red or blue lighting. That's that's yeah. all we have. <laughs> like a disco. It's like a dis- it's lit like a disco. Which is weird, also, because it just feels like wouldn't that be kind of hard to see on especially like a standard definition television? This just feels like it'd be kind of improper for the showmanship, arguably. Man, give your fucking corneas a break, for God's sakes. <laughs> God help you if they start strobing. It's just like right. it's a nightmare for epileptics. Good God. <laughs> There's so much fun in this movie, though. I mean, whether it's a faithful adaptation or not, I haven't read the source material. Now I, I want it's to. It's not. Yeah, it's not even not even in the same wheelhouse as the book. You see, now, now I mean, right? And I, I really want to read the book now. I, I just think there's so much fun to be had watching this movie. Well, I guess that's as good a spot as any to segue into your final thoughts, Adam. Overall, and especially, I want to hear how it sort of ranks in the overall less Stephen King pantheon and more of the Schwarzenegger pantheon for you. Well, final thoughts overall. I mean, like I just said, uh, it's just—I think it's just an entertaining movie. It's—it's it's funny when it's not supposed to be. It's uh, you know, good deaths, good cheesy Richard Dawson, good just set design was pretty good. Everything was well done, I thought. Um, and the overall pantheon of Schwarzenegger. Oh God, I mean, my favorite Schwarzenegger movie is Predator. So I. I mean, this is in the top ten, for sure. I would throw this at a solid six or seven. I think it fits, and I think the way you described it earlier is perfect. This is like B-movie Schwarzenegger. This is like when he was just, you know... It remind me. This reminds me of like a canon film. This could easily be a canon film. Oh, God, if it was like a solid $20 million less, it would be definitely a canon film. Right, but couldn't you see them doing something like this? Oh, easily? no, I can totally see oh, that. Yeah, like, yeah. absolutely. Like yeah. I said, it would cost less twenty-seven million and more like seven. If right, it'd be it'd be Michael Dudikoff. But, okay. <laughs> but uh, I just think that it's you know if you're an Arnold fan, you know you can't go wrong with it. If you're a Stephen King fan, apparently you can go very wrong with it. So it's just what what fan are you? And then you'll like it or you or you'll hate it. Well, that's as good a transition as ever. Into Dave, uh, your final thoughts on The Running Man. Actually, I'm going to kind of mirror Adam a little bit. I mean, as a Schwarzenegger movie, I, I think it fits the bill. Uh, it does have some uh, fun moments, uh, uh, unpurposely hilarious at times. Uh, I honestly don't even consider it a King adaptation, quite frankly. I mean, I really don't. Uh, I'm not even sure if I sat down and had to list it in my top 25 Stephen King films that would be in there. <laughs> uh, oh no! But but 
But again, as a as an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, it, it's fun. It's definitely a product of its time. It's uh, Schwarzenegger at his Schwarzeneggiest, uh, and um, you know, I, it, it's okay. It's I. It's I. <laughs> <laughs> And I would like to ask, what would you consider sort of the best of the Schwarzeneggers to you, as someone who's maybe not the typical uh, fan? To me, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I think I'd have to go to Terminator Two for me. For me, he was at the top of his game in that film. No, I mean, and I would generally agree. I, I'm. In, it's interesting that I grew up more in sort of the late '90s, early 2000s, but I did grow up with Schwarzenegger movies in general. My my dad loved showing me the Schwarzenegger movies. I did see them at a very young age, and I did grow to have a major affection for Schwarzenegger as sort of this big, burly icon of action cinema, especially of that 80s, 90s period. Um, but still, I would definitely agree that it's this is B-level Schwarzenegger. It's not him quite at his best. I think because it sort of plays more into his traditional image doesn't challenge him, the best ones tend to challenge sort of his typical image and kind of put him in a more desperate situation, like, you know, a Predator, for example, or kind of play him against usual type, like immediately the first Terminator kind of did prior to him getting his image, or Terminator 2 kind of making the perfect marriage of it. Um, with, you know, The Running Man, I would say... It's more at that B level um, of some of the other ones that were maybe around this period as well. Um, it, I wish it played more into the satire elements that, as Dave kind of mentioned, seem to be more from the source material. Um, found a better balance with that. But as it still stands, it is fun. There are some interesting one-liners, and Richard Dawson is very much worth seeing the movie for. And it's it's it also feels just kind of like it has moments that kind of feel like interesting satire. I just wish they kind of pushed it a bit further. But then again, you also get a workout video with Jesse Ventura, which is great. <laughs> that oh whole, God. I wish the whole movie was playing at that level of silly yeah. over-the-top satire. If it was that, the whole movie, it would be a perfect movie. But as it stands, it still isn't too bad. Um, but speaking of bad, uh, let's get into the second film of our double feature, Maximum Overdrive. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. It was my first picture as a director, and you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. Maximum terror. Maximum king. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Now, uh, Dave, we're kind of making up for the lack of maybe necessarily a faithful King adaptation with a full-on King adaptation, uh, given that Maximum Overdrive released uh, in 1986, specifically July 25th, 1986, uh, is the first and only feature King has directed. Um, he also wrote it. He's written a few other movies, but um, this is based on his short story, Trucks, which um, I haven't read the short story either. Would you say it's a faithful adaptation, Dave? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in the, uh, again, it's a short story. Trucks is just, uh, 
not even a, no, a novella. It's just a, a, I can't remember how many pages it is, but uh, uh, basically it's in a world where trucks have become the alpha predator and humans are the prey. That was the basic premise of the thing. In Maximum Overdrive, he, uh, you know, developed these characters, the truck stop, the Dixie Boy, where they all could meet and, and play out their little melodrama of survival. <laughs> so it is a faithful adaptation as far as the storyline goes, uh, not so much with characters. And, uh, you know, the Green Goblin, of course, became kind of the iconic thing out of this movie. And that is was written for the movie. So, And Dave, I, I was also curious, because in our pre-show, you kind of briefly hinted to us that uh, this had a sort of big connection to you. I imagine given, you know, 1986, Big King fan, you hear, oh my god, he's directing a movie. This is the first time this ever happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm... yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, it was insanity. It really was. This is when I kind of realized that my fandom was... <laughs> A little overkill, because I was absolutely insane for this to come out. I mean, I was following this like it was one of my children. <laughs> I belonged to the Stephen King fan club at the time, and we used to get a uh, pre-internet, of course. Uh, so everything was done through the mail, through the post. So if you wanted to be a member of the Stephen King fan club, you sent a letter to Stephen King and said, I want to be in your fan club. And uh, and he would send you uh, every month uh they would print up this uh, like little newspaper, for lack of a better thing, and they would mail it. I still, I've got all of them here. Uh, I was a member for years until the, when the internet came around, it ruined all that fun. And I was getting bi-weekly mailings uh, from the Castle Rock newsletter, which was coming from Stephen King and his uh, assistant, Stephanie something or other. Like from the set, they were sending pictures of what was going on and what was happening. I mean, they were just making this sound like this was going to be the gone with the wind of horror and and then it came out. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fart in the wind of war. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of love basically what you're saying is this is kind of maximum overdrive for you was what that trash can Stephen King talks about is like his wife dug through the trash can and found like bits of cocaine and marijuana du- stubs and also like bloody things from his nosebleeds. Like that's this moment for you of just like. I've gone too far. I have to slow my roll a bit. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I think I might be a little obsessed. <laughs> I so, have a uh, problem. <laughs> but uh, anticipation for this film was huge. And then that trailer came out. And oh. the trailer was so good of him that him going, I'm going to scare the hell out of you. I don't know if you guys remember that. Well, I, I, uh, I actually, uh, for the podcast, I would have edited that in right before our discussion here. Um, that oh, okay. particular trailer, of course, because uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know, um, I've edited it into the audio here, but you have to see it for yourself because it's it's Stephen King standing in front of the Green Goblin thing that you mentioned that's sort of in front of the truck, and it's him talking about like, "Hi, I'm Stephen King. I'm here to tell you that I've seen so many people adapt my books, and I just realized, you know what? If you want something done right, you got to do it." yourself and just really hyping the fuck out of this leading to i'm gonna scare the hell out of you looking at the audience as the green goblin eyes light red in the background it's like oh man this is gonna be great right it was it was so it was so good in the theater and again back in those days you didn't know that like oh there you know this this preview is going to be before this movie or anything else you just went to the goddamn movie and the previews are the previews you know it's not like now where you know oh if i go friday i'm going to see the preview for this or that so we had no idea this was coming uh you know our main source of information was fangoria and that only came out once every other month 
So we didn't even know this was coming. Um, and it was just so good. And the, 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 well, as it turns out, that little two minute promo is the best part of the movie, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, we were very, very excited about it. And then, you know, in, in, you know, after years, uh, you know, you, you, you find out what you were alluding to Thomas and he was uh, coked out of his mind, had no idea what he was doing. He'd never made a movie. Nobody ever told him, you know, about, uh, you know, how, how to make a movie, you know, anything about any of it. And it is horribly apparent. <laughs> but Okay. Here's the thing. I had heard for years that this was the movie that Stephen King made and he was coked out of his mind. I'd heard that for so long before I saw the movie a few years ago for the first time. And that sounds like if it's not good, it would be at least weird over the top crazy. And this movie's a fucking slog to get through. <laughs> Dude, it's so boring. It's so boring. Like, I watched it again today for the first time in probably five, six years. Easy. And I'm watching it, and I'm literally just nodding off. I just got home from work. I'm, like, all amped up to watch it. And I'm going, oh, oh, just nodding off, nodding off, nodding off. Until, like, my kid had to come in and, like, throw a toy truck at me. Literally, she came in and threw a toy truck at me. And it woke me up, so I restarted it, and I was ready to go. But, oh, my God. God, man, about after the first 10 minutes, you just wanted to end so bad. <laughs> and I would, I'm guessing after she threw that truck, you just started screaming, We made you! We made you! <laughs> How ripped off did you feel at Pat Hingle's death? Uh, I mean, kind of. Then again, it's more ripped off just because Pat Hingle's the only person who kind of gives a shit in this movie. I kind of well, love... yeah, he's such a piece of shit. But you don't even see the bullets hit him. No, that's true. It's just like the red squib show up after the it cuts to the gun and then it cuts to Pat Hinkle. It's almost what? as if uh, hmm, maybe the person directing this didn't know how to fucking direct a movie and really emphasize the impact of stuff like that. But Pat Hinkle's so trying. Like I love the bit where he calls Emilio Estevez in and Emilio uh-huh. Estevez is like, oh, I'm making eggs. And he's like, I don't give a ladybug. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but that's kind of great. <laughs> Um, but it's weird, like, for characters like Pat Hengel and a few others, I, I had a, a friend, shout out to Andy Herrera, uh, at Ben Braddock's on Twitter, um, who told me this a few years ago, and it makes a lot of sense. This feels almost like it's an unintentional parody of Stephen King works, like, watching it, because it has so many of, like, the bingo card spots for a Stephen King parody of, like, oh, asshole Hicks kind of working class hero. Um, it's all that's missing is a really over-the-top religious person. But even then, you also have the Bible salesman, who does right. have the best bit of delivery in the movie, where he's talking to people trying to sell his Bibles, and then he sees his truck is getting screwed up by the garbage truck, and he's like, what the fuck? And gets up and literally throws a woman out of the way and says, like, get out of my way, bitch! Like, really quickly. <laughs> and then storms out. <laughs> and of course, you see the suitcase of Bibles get run over, naturally. Yes, uh, but it, it does feel unconsciously like Stephen King's kind of getting out a lot of stuff with this movie, and it's a shame that most of it is just literally fucking trucks circling a gas station. Oh, oh God. So yeah. much of this movie is just that, and it's like, couldn't the trucks be doing something more interesting? Couldn't we get a bit more blood and viscera? It's interesting because we almost did with the infamous sort of steamroller death that happens to uh, one of the kids oh, at the at the I baseball <laughs> it's funny in the movie but it's interesting that apparently that shot was originally much gorier 
because the way they had the special effects set up, it would actually burst out with blood, and that was in the original cut, and um, King showed it to his filmmaking friend, Mr. George A. Romero, and Romero apparently got sick watching it, but they had to cut that for the MPAA. I really want to see what that was. I so want to see whatever you're, that was. You're trying to say you want Maximum Overdrive, the director's cut? I, I want the, the special oh, edition with two bags in the background as well, yes. The, the Stephen King, George Lucas cut is what I really want. Hey, man, Scream Factory just put out Exorcist 2, so... That's true. They're going to put Any, that out. Anything There's is hope. possible. Yeah. God. Look, I won't get that set of Maximum Overdrive, but I will hunt down that clip on YouTube. I will definitely do that. But I guess basic premise of the movie is, as Dave kind of mentioned, um, the trucks come to life in this thing that's contradicted by both the opening and the closing text scrawl of, like, initially it's a comet, but then also a UFO is shot down by Russian satellites at the end of the movie. Who knows who made who, guys? That's the real lesson of the movie. Uh, It causes these trucks and other machines to come to life, um, including, say, like an ATM machine that calls Stephen King an asshole. Uh, which yeah. is a fun bit at the very opening. Uh-huh. And even the whole sequence where a drawbridge goes up while trucks are still on it, which sadly is kind of like the height of the movie, <laughs> is that opening bit <laughs> in which his trucks like fall, um, all scored to the composers of the film ACDC. And no, it isn't just the songs that are put in here. They also score the movie, including this awful bit of music that plays constantly. It's just like... Ring, ring, ring. <laughs> Constantly. It's awful. Dude, <laughs> I forgot about that. A fucking guy gets killed by a can of pop. <laughs> it bludgeons True. his head pretty hardcore at. And also Killer kills pop. several children. <laughs> Which, I, once again, the inept filmmaking of just like these kids are initially laughing at this guy getting beaten by a bunch of cans that are falling out. And then they start hitting them somehow. Um, and then it cuts back and they're all dead. Okay, that's how those kids died, sure. Isn't there, isn't there a kid chased by a lawnmower, too? Was that sticking yeah. in my mind? I haven't seen nope, this in a while. Yep. But... It's, it's, it's the main boy, uh, Deke? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Deke. Yeah, the lawnmower chases him while he's riding his bike. Another Stephen King trope, a plucky young child protagonist. Put that one on the bingo chart. Um, <laughs> for sure. And, of course, the lawnmower thing was very interesting because um, that was a radio-controlled lawnmower that was using that scene, and it went out of control and struck a block of wood uses camera support, which uh, shot out wood blenders out, which injured director of photography Armando Nanuzzi, who was a famous Italian cinematographer. You look at his IMDb, it's like Italian films all the way from the 40s upward, um, and caused him to lose his right eye. The fucking lawnmower and maximum overdrive blinded that guy. That's crazy. Seriously. Uh, that poor guy. <laughs> Oh, Especially when you have to work man. on the movie after that. How do you work on the movie after that happens? And Stephen King's you... just like, hey, why don't you boringly shoot this thing over there? And Armando's just like, I'm dead inside. Sure. I'm mowing your lawn after that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're really downing on Maximum Overdrive, but uh, yes. Dave, is, is, is there anything to salvage out of it? Is there any moments you want to spotlight that might actually work about this film? Did I mention the really good trailer? <laughs> from the actual film dave come on you can try uh, really there's there's nothing that that uh that great in any of it but there, there are some 
some fun moments, at least that I had fun with. And again, I haven't seen, I actually did not rewatch this before the podcast. Uh, so I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of flying blind a little bit, but there, is there not a, a scene with a, uh, newlywed couple being attacked by watermelons or something? Well, yes, that does happen on that drawbridge scene, uh, which okay. <laughs> is literally just like they pelt down on somebody and, um, it's just like so many watermelons going toward, um, it almost feels like, so you're making, like, a, what would be a high-level trauma special effect into just, like, the fun first bit of your movie. Sure. Fine. We'll, <laughs> well, and the, but the thing, uh, Yardley Smith, I believe, plays the the bride. Yes. And she has she has that voice that, I mean, through the whole movie, all you hear is her screaming, whatever that dude's name is. Curtis! Curtis! Yes. Curtis! Uh, yeah. So, uh, and again, that always... Uh, kind of made me smile and I thought it was kind of funny but uh, yeah there's 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 uh, and again I want to love this movie so much I mean I really really truly do uh, but there's just nothing and even Stephen King himself is you know you know he, he he's just kind of like you met you bring it up or it comes up in in conversations and he's like I'm sorry <laughs> well I'm yeah one of my favorite quotes of Stephen King's is somebody asked why well, haven't you directed anything since Maximum Overdrive he's like just watch Maximum Overdrive <laughs> That's what I mean. and, he, make, he makes no beans about it a good soundtrack came out of it if you're a metal fan ACDC some, some fun metal Right, Who Made Who is a fun song they wrote for the movie itself um, that's, that's for sure doesn't always fit in the movie um, the movie feels like kind of too slow to quite work for ACDC Anytime yeah. it shows up, it's just like even that opening sequence where it's just like, oh man, we're being raucous and over the top. Especially they use a lot of the songs from like the Back in Black album, so it's a lot of like the big, you know, ACDC hits, and it just doesn't fit at all with the very slow, drawn out scenes that are happening. There's ten minutes of them filling gas tanks with Hell's Bells playing. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> they become slaves to the machines. Uh-huh. Out of control. <laughs> there's one of my favorite ineptitudes of the movie is there's a point where Emilio Estevez and another guy are like off in the distance and they make a point of them like having their asses up. It's like I've never seen a hero ass up like that. And the female lead, um, uh, Laura Harrington, is just like, I don't mind the view. Um, from where she's standing and looking, she's looking at like where their faces would be. Right, so it doesn't make, right. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense that she's talking <laughs> about the ass shot. Like he, Stephen King breaks the 180 rule countless times in this movie. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. give a single shit. Um, did those two fall in love pretty quick, or what? Oh my god! Like especially that one of the worst like post love making scenes of all time, where she just says like, "You sure make love like a hero." <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my just, god so, I, I, I gotta re i gotta rewatch this again now you guys no, i don't think you do <laughs> especially when also um laura harrington says uh like one of the most dispassionate deliveries i've ever heard someone say which is just like maybe tomorrow it'll be our world again it's like she doesn't give a single flat fuck about what's oh. happening at all when that happens. But you know what's interesting is, speaking of the cast, this is a weirdly stacked cast in terms of character actors. Like, the pro- the biggest name, of course, Emilio Estevez. This is his follow-up to Breakfast Club. Like, I just imagine a group of kids who saw Breakfast Club are like, oh my god, Emilio Estevez is so great. And they go into Maximum Overdrive, and they're severely disappointed. Um, but <laughs> we mentioned uh, Pat Hengel, Yardley Smith, who most people oh. know as the voice of Lisa Simpson. And the whole time she's yelling as Southern Lisa Simpson. It's indistinguishable. 
anytime uh-huh. she says anything. Uh, Frankie Faison, who you would know as uh, uh, the guy who would play the orderly from most of the Hannibal Lecter movies. Um, the the one that surprised me, I, I completely forgot about, is Giancarlo Esposito as the guy in the video arcade. I know how fucking <laughs> hilarious is that. Who, who you oh my would God. know as Gus Fring from the Breaking Bad series. Um, just as like a young punk who literally says to a video arcade machine at one point, your mama. Like, what are you, why? <laughs> why, why? Does this video game arcade have a mother? What are you talking about? <laughs> and how does it electric, electrocute him through the wood cabinet? Well, I don't know, like, but he becomes so fascinated. He's like a child watching Baby Einstein. He's just so entranced. Yeah, it's like it's it's drawing him in. (laughs) For whatever reason, then he gets electrocuted in extremely cartoonish fashion. Um, And it's the first of many bodies that are hidden in this movie. Like, Pat Hingle, I I, want to know the history of this character who just, like, knows immediately where to hide the bodies. I'm just like, what's your backstory, dude? You've done this many times. Shitload of guns. Oh my god, yeah. I do like that one bit of dialogue where they go back and forth about, like, um, oh, do you think he probably stole these? And, you know, Emilio Estevez is like, um, he probably bought them. That's the kind of guy he seems to be. Another thing about, I don't know, it's something simple, it's something stupid, but sometimes there's a thing that bothered me the most in movies. Why did everyone shoot the fucking bazooka from the hip? (laughs) 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 They're hip firing off a goddamn rocket launcher. Don't you think it should be a little more, like, maybe try to be a little more precise with it? Yeah, or anything. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I don't know, man. I just thought that was great. Because I don't know that that can be done that way either. <laughs> Unless you're Pat Hingle, Emilio Estevez, anybody in a this movie can do that. <laughs> a waitress at a truck stop knows you know, how to... He, you know, even Arnold Schwarzenegger knew to do that from the shoulder in mm-hmm. Commando. He knew yep. to do it that way. <laughs> well, he was a Commando, as you already said. <laughs> well, yes, that's very true, of course. He's not a, a gas station uh, guy An flipping eggs. An egg cook. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say there are a few other moments that just sort of promise more of the movie I kind of wanted out of this of just something overly zany over the top like probably my favorite moment in the whole movie is just there's a point where the characters are sitting around one of many countless scenes of them waiting inside the gas station as the trucks go around them and there's just a shot of like a big red doorway and there's a couple guys just sitting there just playing cards or whatever and then all of a sudden, a guy who we've never seen in the movie, I think, before, comes bursting out saying, What the fuck is going on? I love that guy. <laughs> I love that guy. With, like, the lime green shirt on, the bright green shirt, and the red afro. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is going on in here? You're like, wait a minute. I love it. <laughs> it needed more moments like that. It just like, But he gets shot to shit like yes, he does 10 too. seconds later. I asked Dave this as well. Like, Adam, are there any other sort of spots that you can find of quality in Maximum Overdrive? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, like, like we already said, Pat Hingle clearly was the only one who was actually even trying in this. I love the look of the Green Goblin truck. I mean, it's so, like, cheesy looking and cheap, but it's so cool. Okay. I mean, it's, it's clearly not street legal at all. No, right. That's what I thought, too. Like, I didn't see, I didn't notice that when I first watched it, but watched it today, I'm like, wait a second. The, the view obstruction with that thing is insane. Its ears are right down there in the middle of the windows. <laughs> that, you know that truck goes around the conventions now. Some guy actually bought it and restored it. Yeah. He drives it around the conventions. You have your picture taken with it. I'm going to steal it. 
But um, <laughs> other than that, that's about it, man. And I love, I love the opening and ending credit exposition. I love that you know a UFO was shot down by a Russian satellite that was armed with nuclear warheads. Yeah, yeah that's what, yeah, that's what they say. Uh, a Soviet weather satellite, yeah. conveniently equipped with Class Four nuclear missiles. Yep. <laughs> and then everything went back to normal five days later. And the survivors, they're surviving. They're surviving. It so undercuts kind of like this moment where the heroes are like, "Oh my God, we're saved." It's like, but what do we do now? Oh, it's fine. <laughs> Go home, yeah, everybody. Right. It's fine. <laughs> you just waited out a week, just kept filling up with gas. You guys have been all right. <laughs> Just, like, go have a vacation on an island, you're fine. Right, dude, enjoy yourselves. <laughs> Very true. Um, I, I think there are moments also of just, like, Stephen King-ish dialogue that I kind of like. There's a point where Emilio Estevez talks to Pat Hingle and says, you're about one of the biggest fuckheads I've ever met. <laughs> um, it's a fun moment. Or um, there's a bit where it's um, Emilio Estevez and the Curtis character are just going through the sewers and it's, it sort of feels like almost an it moment of them kind of having a bit of camaraderie. It almost feels like these two actors are just like, well, we're stuck in the shit. Let's have a bit of fun with our banter. There's a few fleeting moments like that where it kind of feels like this is more of sort of the sort of grounded down-to-earth Stephen King that I wish we kind of had more of. Or even the sort of some of the more over-the-top horror moments, like when the Bible salesman like comes up and tries to attack the kid and says, like, ah, if you don't get me out of here, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> like, literally with, like, a Pennywise-type character suddenly popping up, like, is this about machines that come to life? <laughs> Stephen, come on. But yeah, it's... I think what works about Stephen King adaptations is... I mean, I'm not as experienced a reader as Dave. I've read a fair share in my time. But I, I like when somebody who has a distinctive style takes on the material, knows what works about King, but also can kind of, like, force a bit more of a hand on what, you know, needs to be cut, what needs to be trimmed. And those make some of the better, if not adaptations, at least the better films vaguely based on his stuff. Like, say, Brian De Palma with Carrie, or um, Robert Reiner with Stand By Me. You know, would you guys generally agree with that? Is that when you sort of have, like, a pretty good auteur on hand, he kind of works best in terms of getting his stuff adapted well uh yeah i would agree wholeheartedly with that sir yes absolutely yeah because when he sort of is even when he's more involved in like a writing stage and as a producer it kind of tends to be you know movies that and miniseries that are good in terms of adaptation but bad in terms of just general quality like say the shining miniseries very faithful to the book garbage uh, miniseries yes it's really bad <laughs> <laughs> my two choices that I thought you were going to pick for worse adaptations I thought it was either going to be one of the awful Children of the Corn sequels or something like that Langoliers or The Shining TV series I was like, I so gonna, like, like Adam whenever I do this bad choice I realize I also have to watch this I'm not going to spend four hours rewatching <laughs> the fucking Shining <laughs> that's movie true. series that's true <laughs> If you want to do a murder suicide, it'll be for a short movie, <laughs> like Maximum <laughs> Overdrive. Right. Well, yeah, you can give it that, even though it's only what like an hour and twenty-seven minutes long. It feels like it's four hours long. No, that's true. It, it, it definitely feels like that. It feels oddly like I mentioned this before. The fact that it's the Stephen King Coke-produced movie, it feels less like somebody who is directly high in that adrenaline rush while directing, and more of someone who's like on the downslope. After a cocaine binge, 
of just like, oh, what am I doing with my life? What's happening? Sure, the truck circle. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, and this is like right before, right? He ended up quitting drugs, Dave. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. This is this was kind of the defining moment, if you will. Yeah, this was when he got clean. If, if this, if we make the Stephen King biopic, this would be the end of Act Two, where he just realizes, <laughs> my God, what have I done? <laughs> my name's all over this thing, and people going to see it. <laughs> and if we do that for the record, give Bill Hader a beard; it'll be perfect. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> But uh, I guess let's go into our final thoughts. Dave, final thoughts on Maximum Overdrive. Uh, probably the single biggest cinematic disappointment uh, of my life. <laughs> I was so looking forward to this. And I was so wrapped up in the getting made and I was following it so closely. And then, like I said, after that trailer, uh, I just thought this was going to be just the most epic horror film ever. Uh, it, it's a shame. Um uh, that it turned out the way it did, but it is what it is. Uh, and it's a, uh, a testament to that time in, uh, in King's life and the things he was going through. Um, all we can do is kind of watch it now and laugh at it, which is what we've accomplished to do here this evening. So, uh, yeah, it, it's best forgotten, but unfortunately it will, it will always be around to spring back into our minds. <laughs> Even for someone who didn't revisit the movie before. Well said, Dave. Adam, <laughs> your final thoughts. Uh, you know, this is probably the third time I've actually seen this movie. And I swear to God, I forget well over 75% of, 75% of it every time I've watched it. Not even the third time, I'm, I'm watching it going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to remember this movie in, in six months. I think this is just ultimately a forgettable movie. I don't think it's... Uh, so bad it's good movie. I, I mean, there's a couple little things you can maybe take away from it, but it's not going to be something that'll come up in conversation when you're talking about funny, you know, bits and bad movies. It, it, there's there's really nothing here for anybody. I mean, it's it's just the the work of a coke addict mind on screen. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just this is just pure, just boring, boring. Uh, plea and cry for help. That's what this movie is. I would argue if you want a more funny bad Stephen King adaptation, watch Thinner. Yes, I agree. That's that's more funny bad. Um, Yeah, I mean, I agree mostly with what Adam said. I would say it's not the worst Stephen King adaptations. I think we've gotten worse ones that have come uh, before and since. But I would definitely say um, there are sparse moments of interest. It's more curious if you're sort of a Stephen King connoisseur as Dave maybe was, and can give you a pure insight into Unbridled King, and maybe make you appreciate more of the other ones that might not be as close to the book, but arguably just become better films for what they know when to keep and what to not keep, versus King's just like, keep it all! Do it! (laughs) (laughs) We gotta get to 90 minutes! (laughs) For sure. Uh, Well, that is the end of our discussion of the two films. Uh, Before we go, we have some feedback we want to read. Uh, first from Bill Gabriel, um, who, uh, by the way, we posted this on the uh, Double Edge Double Bill Facebook 
page and also the Twitter account, which is both at DEDBpod, well, which you can like and follow. And uh, we posted asking you guys, what are your favorite and least favorite Stephen King adaptations? And the uh, first one from Bill Gabriel says, uh, the 2017 It was great, but I have to go with The Mist for schlock fun Graveyard Shift. I haven't seen Graveyard Shift. Is that actually schlock fun? I've, I've heard conflicting things. I thought it was pretty awful, to be honest. It, it, it really, it really is really bad. But I, I can see the schlock factor in there. Well, um, uh, Luke McBride had a lot to say, um, especially oh, about Lord. what he considers his least <laughs> favorite. Which um, I will say this here, and this is keep in mind uh, between two comments he did on the uh, Facebook post, um, where he said his least favorite was the Miss, which he says, "quote uh, was shit." I'm a big fan <laughs> of his written collective work, Skeleton Crew. <laughs> And I feel like they've they could have made it so much better. The short story I loved. The adaptation snowballs chance, brother. The ending felt simple-minded and lacking in imagination. There was one scene in particular when the stock boy gets effed up in the back by a tentacle that they never showed. I remember the way King wrote it, and the movie falls short there, miserably so. There were some parts that kept remarkably similar, like the spiders with human faces and corrosive webs and such, and that was well done. The liberties they took with the ending pissed me off in no small way, so yeah, not for me. Uh, But for good, he says, It, both new and old, and Insomnia were dope. I love Rose Red, but Secret Window with Johnny Depp just didn't quite get in the movie adaptation. Pet Cemetery was and still is a personal favorite. The Shining goes without mention, but it doesn't need to be mentioned. It's just a great film. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a lot to take in there. A lot to take in. <laughs> a lot to take in. Yes. Responses, <laughs> gentlemen. Rebuttals. Well, uh, Mr. McBride is actually uh, my best friend. I'm gonna punch him in the penis next time I see him. A for making me read all that. B. I gotta disagree with the mist. I think the mist was. I liked the ending in the mist. I, oh, I liked it. The ending of the mist the... is one of the best King endings ever. Because the short story doesn't have an ending. It, right. It, it just ends with them driving off into the mist. Right. So why okay. not expand about it? I mean, a dare about it. Did he make it one of the most downer endings of all time? That That's... is such a depressing downing ending. You will never forget it. Exactly. Well, I remember, I think I might have told this story before on a podcast, but I remember being so disappointed in Cujo because in the book Cujo, the little boy dies in the book. Spoiler if you haven't read Cujo. But and I remember after I read that, I mean, like literally for weeks, I was like inconsolable. I couldn't believe that King let this little boy die. So when the movie came out, I was looking for that same gut punch and they let the little bastard live. And I felt so ripped off. And then you go to the mist now and, and you know, they, they go with the dark ending. And I think it works so much, so much better than either no ending or a happy ending. It was great. I, I, I think it was absolutely perfect. I, I will say this much. When I first saw the mist, I was more in Mr. McBride's camp. When I first saw it back in around 2007, 2008, maybe when it first got on video, I wasn't as big a fan. And I felt kind of like that ending was a bit more of an unnecessary punch. I did revisit it, um, actually, last December, around its 10th anniversary, and I think it holds up a lot better. I still have many issues with it, uh, but I don't think it's really the ending. I think the ending especially works interestingly because it's so much ingrained in Thomas Jane's sort of fucked-up arc of the movie, where before he wants to, like, stay with his kid, he doesn't want to actually try and lead anybody, he just wants to him and his kid to survive, and slowly he's kind of tossed into the leadership role, and the movie kind of almost makes it like, okay, he's maybe gonna do it, then he has to make a tough decision that you're like, it's rough, but 
you you made a very hard decision, and then fucks them over so hard. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's 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 such an interesting tragic arc for him as a character. Um, and it's it, that really isn't really my issue. I have more issues with some of the stuff with not the biggest Marsha Gay Harding fan. I think some of that stuff is a bit more in sort of King's territory for over the top uh, religious villains, and also some bad special effects stuff. But far more importantly. They have Andre Brower, one of the best character actors of our time, and he's so awesome when he's there, and then he leaves too unceremoniously. He's so good in that movie. I wish we had way more of him. I agree. Um, But what about some of the other things? Uh, New It, great. Old It, doesn't hold up. Secret (laughs) Window was garbage, and I don't like Rose Red either. Yeah, I'm not a, not a fan of Rose Red. A Secret Window, I could uh, take or leave, uh, both as a as a story as a short story and as a film. Pet Cemetery, yeah, it it just you know Pet Cemetery's Pet Cemetery. It's I'm, iconic. I'm very excited for the remake, though. I'm very curious to see. Me if they too. Can I like the, the way it's. I like the cast so far. So yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 especially a John Lithgow playing the Fred Gwynn part is so yeah. great. Never in a million years thought John Lithgow. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, of course it's John Lithgow. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> yeah, I was, totally, I was totally against it when they announced it. Because, again, the, the Fred Gwynn take on, mm-hmm. you know, on it is so big. But then you, you heard Lithgow and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. No, let, yeah, let's do this. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Get back to our feedback here. Uh, Lance Langford uh, says, uh, Needful things in the Mangler are forgettable. The Lawnmower Man was horrible and had nothing to do with the story. Uh, the Stand was my favorite book, and the miniseries was great until the ending. Dolores Claiborne, Shawshank, and Misery are my favorites. And, you know, this didn't make me want to ask this. Dave, what are some of your favorite of the non-horror adaptations that they've done? I, I think probably Stand By Me is probably my, my favorite. Shawshank Redemption is right up there as well. Uh, but I, I, I kind of uh, Stand By Me is kind of my go-to. That, that was the alternate choice for the good movie for this episode was Stand By Me. Uh, yeah, no, I absolutely love Stand By Me. But uh, I think my favorite is Dolores Claiborne. Kathy Bates in that movie and uh, David Strathairn. Oh, my God. What a scumbag he was in that movie. Interesting factoid. Uh, Thomas Del Ruth uh, was the cinematographer on both Stand By Me and The Running Man. Oh, well, interesting. Hey. Interesting, yes. Uh, so we kind of watched Stand By Me. um and then mirab with sales unfurled who is at elwood underscore tiberius which is a great twitter handle i just gotta say i I love that um says a best worst adaptation twofer frank darabont's the mist versus spike tv's the mist series other best the stand miniseries the goat greatest of all time if you ask me Shawshank redemption gerald's game on netflix worse the Langoliers, and I didn't need to see it to know The Dark Tower was an incredible miscalculation. I don't know. I remember when that originally came out, Dave. Uh, I remember you being a big fan of The Dark Tower, despite not being a fan of the books. Yeah, well, and I think that's the reason I liked the movie more, because my wife absolutely hated it. Uh, but she was a big fan of The Dark Tower book. Uh, Thomas, as you're aware, I'm not a big fan of like the whole fantasy type stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure King's writing is is fantastic in it. I just can't go through all that world building crap. <laughs> it's just too much for me. So, uh, but I enjoyed the film. Everything seemed kind of compressed into this like two hour capsule and I enjoyed it, but I was definitely in the minority. Yeah. It's fucking terrible. Don't bother. <laughs> anyway. 
Um, and I will say, uh, we talked about a lot of these other adaptations. Um, I didn't actually see the Mist TV series beyond the pilot, and I was kind of not interested from there. Did that get any better in that one season than had? Uh, no, bother? no, it really didn't. I, uh, much like yourself, I lost interest. Not, not a fan of the, of the, of the series. For sure. Um, and I'll say this, we've mentioned the Langoliers. The Langoliers is garbage, <laughs> but the only thing that kind of keeps it somewhat afloat is um, Balky himself, Bronson Pinchot, as yep. that the character who says one of my favorite bad lines in a Stephen King adaptation of scaring the little girl. <laughs> Hilarious. I'd like to throw uh, the Night Flyer out there, too, for a pretty good adaptation. Yeah, yeah, I, I I really enjoy that film a lot. It's hard Me to believe too. that that has not come out yet on a Screen I, Factory. I know, I cannot believe it. I mean, if you want to see Miguel Ferrer do a really great performance, he's fantastic in that movie. Yeah, he really is. Uh, well, uh, we want to before we get out, we want to thank uh, Chris Oliver, who does the music for our show. Listen to more of his work uh, at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Also, thanks to Emily Scarter for our artwork for our podcast, as she accepts commissions at Fiverr with two R's dot com slash ee And of course, we want to thank Mr. Dave Dreyer, our lovely guest for the evening. Dave, it was so fun having you on. Yeah, I really enjoyed being here. Thanks a lot, guys. I uh, I appreciate you inviting me in. Anything you want to plug briefly before we skedaddle? Uh, I think everybody knows where they can find me. I'm still hanging out over at Gruesome Magazine, uh, Horror News Radio. Um, yeah, just kind of doing what we do. So I'm all over the horror community. Mm-hmm. And of course, Look, uh, at Savini Fan on Twitter, if you want to. At Savini Fan on Twitter, yes. Bruise all of his thoughts. And of course, um, we're also on Twitter, as we mentioned, uh, at DEDBpod for the show itself. Uh, you can also uh, find us on our Facebook page, which is that same thing. And uh, double edge double bill at gmail.com is our email address if you want to email us anything. Um, and of course, we're also individually on Twitter. I am at not the who's Tommy on Twitter. And Adam? Not saying it this week. No, you better fucking <laughs> say it. <laughs> God. Um. <clears throat> Malekith fan six nine six nine. Dance puppet, dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, please make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and please rate and review us. Uh, it gives the show more visibility. It gets more people's attention out there for the show. Um, and uh, that is it for our episode this evening. And um, all we gotta say is we hope we scared the hell out of you. Honk. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs>